0: Well, good morning. Thank you, everybody, so much for coming. I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and you are at a Capitol Hill briefing entitled, Restarting Health Reform with Health Savings Accounts. Um, I will spare you the long introduction, because we are short on time, and instead get right to the introductions, but we are going to be talking about health savings accounts today. Um, And first up today will be uh, Dr. David Brad who is the House Representative of Virginia's 7th District. Here he serves as the House Budget Committee, educa- here he serves on the House Budget Committee, Education and the Workforce Committee, and Small Business Committee. He is also a prominent player in the bicameral Article I project, which seeks to restore Congress to its constitutionally prescribed role as the principal lawmaking body of our government. Prior to coming to Congress, he was a Professor of Economics and Chairman of the Economics Department at Randolph-Macon College. He served two Virginia governors on their economic advisory boards, providing them a critical economic forecast to help manage the commonwealth. He also served as president of the Virginia Association of Economists. He has a master's of divinity degree from Princeton Theological Seminary and a
1: Ph.D. in economics from American University. Take it away. Hey, thank you guys very much. Thank you all for coming out. I, I'll, I'll just give a few uh, preliminary remarks as we wait for Senator Flake, but uh, I, I just want to first of all applaud Cato uh, for their history and body of work. Uh, which makes our life a lot easier, right now. Not, I shouldn't say a lot easier, because y'all you, you following the budget process this week. Free markets are flourishing and moving ahead as usual. True or false? I see a lot of young people here. False. Y'all with me? You follow? You know what's going on, right? So we can do better. Help us all. Help our free market team push for rational policy across the board. And today we're just going to get into health savings accounts and, and a piece of the puzzle. Uh, but the budget uh, process itself needs major reforms, right, and we fought hard for regular order, and uh, that's not coming to fruition right now. So I just want to kind of start off with that and then thank you guys for all you've been doing. Uh, Let me just give you a few uh, brief remarks on uh, what we've been doing and working on. uh, Health Savings Account Expansion Act, H.R. 5324, S. 2980. Senator Flake has been key. Senator Flake and I are proud to advance these ideas along with other co-sponsors have been very helpful. Senator Vitter, uh, Reps Culberson, Meadows, Gohmert, Schweiker, Royce, and Rokita. You can see kind of a team effort going on there. Uh, The bill has endorsements from FreedomWorks, National Taxpayers Union, Americans for Tax Reform, and Association of Mature American Citizens. Uh, So we've got good uh, grassroots and solid support going behind us. Uh, has an interesting history, builds on legislation that Senator Flake introduced in 2009 when he was in the House. That bill may have been inspired by Michael's 2008 Large Health Savings Account paper, which built on John's foundational work on HSAs from the early 1990s. Our goal is major simplification and expansion of HSAs uh, for one simple reason. They're good for everyone. Uh, They help establish more normal relationships between workers, consumers, and patients on the one hand, and providers, insurers, and employers on the other, right? I mean, that's kind of a convoluted sentence, but it's basically a hint that free markets work, right? Making things work better, relationships between buyers and sellers, supply and demand, that would be a a good thing to do. Uh, How do we frame it? How how does this bill help these folks work better together? Individuals, families can take control of health spending by paying directly, that's the key feature, uh, for regular expenses, which also promotes transparency in pricing. Health providers would have less billing bureaucracy to deal with from cash paying customers and less overhead as a result. Employers could provide health coverage with much less compliance burden, which is especially important for small businesses innovators could launch solutions faster when consumers can buy directly instead of needing approval from insurance employers or the government. I think you're all familiar with that hassle right of having to call the insurance or being at the doctor's office getting trapped and you're, you're sitting there asking for permission and if you got kids right and you're making appointments and is that procedure covered right you're I got a busy job these days right so it's just great going into a doctor's office and sitting there waiting for minutes or hours or maybe days not knowing if that certain uh, coverage uh, for your kid is covered or not, right? And you're going through this compliance nightmare. Uh, The bill has four main pieces. First, it nearly triples contribution limits to $9,000 for individuals, $18,000 for families. This would cover comprehensive or catastrophic insurance, whatever people want, and most out-of-pocket expenses while letting unspent funds build up in personally owned accounts which is a key feature. Second, it repeals Obamacare provisions that disrespect people's priorities, the extra penalty on non-medical uses and over-the-counter medicine restrictions. Third, it lets HSA funds pay for insurance premiums and direct primary care. This equalizes taxation between employer-sponsored and HSA-purchased insurance. It ensures eligibility for patient-friendly direct primary care, which is like a gym membership, but for basic health care and has monthly fees, which is much simpler than insurance payments. Finally, it repeals the current high deductible health plan mandate and other red tape. This allows much broader choices for individual and family needs. In addition, the current high deductible health plan mandate appears to interact with Obamacare metal levels to eliminate HSA plans on exchanges in 2017. To conclude, the HSA Expansion Act can coexist with much of Obamacare and or reformed health insurance tax credits, but repealing and replacing Obamacare is still the goal. Replacement must not be Obamacare-lite. It needs to include HSA expansion, regulatory relief, restoring federalism for regulations and subsidies, unclogging the FDA bottleneck, modernizing Medicare, and more. The ultimate goal, of course, is to create the conditions for high quality, affordable, accessible, Innovative and personalized health care. I want to thank Cato and Senator Flake for getting to speak with you all today, and uh, it's a privilege to be with you all. And I got to run, but I got time for a couple quick questions if you got any you want to rattle off. And it can be on any, if you want to ask questions on the budget or other free market <laughs> issues as well, that's yeah, fine.
2: Uh, in, your, in, your,
0: uh, in your bill, would employers get the deduction also for contributing to an employee's HSA?
1: Kurt, how are we? The answer is yes. It doesn't change it. Yep. Yeah, I think that's good because
0: I think that is the key that would incentivize a whole bunch of employers to move from defined uh, benefit to defined contribution.
1: Great. There he is. All right. Hey, Senator. Come on up.
0: Senator Flake, good morning. Good to be here. Uh, All the way from Constitution Avenue. Very good. So Let me introduce Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona. He is a member of the U.S. Senate, of course, and he sits on the Judiciary Committee, the Energy and National Resources Committee, and Foreign Relations Committee, and he also serves as Chairman of the Subcommittee on African Affairs. Uh, Flake served here in the House of Representatives from 2001 to 2013, but prior to that, he served as not many people know this, Executive Director of the Goldwater Institute. Uh, In this role, he worked to promote a philosophy of less government, more freedom, and individual responsibility, and he has been a friend to Liberty and the Cato Institute for as long as we've known him. Uh, Mr. Flake graduated from Brigham Young University, where he received his B.A. in International Relations and an M.A. in Political Science. Uh, please welcome Senator Flake. Thank you.
3: It's nice to be here. It's nice to be at any function that Cato does. I mean, I've always appreciated Cato. Uh, I uh, collaborated with Cato a lot when I was at the Goldwater Institute on health care and education and other issues and have relied on their Expertise on on a lot uh, over the past several years, immigration. One thing I've always appreciated is the uh, position on Cuba as well. I've always felt, as you all know, if we want to get rid of the Castro brothers, we got to make them deal with spring break once or twice. And uh, <laughs> and Cato has always backed that proposition, and so I've appreciated that. But uh, also appreciated all the good work that's been done by Cato and and people like John Goodman as well down there for so many years on. On uh, patient-driven healthcare reform, and what uh, Dave and I have uh, introduced here is obviously an expansion of HSAs uh, to make sure that that we can use market discipline uh, to rein in healthcare costs and put uh, consumers, patients, uh, once again, in charge of their own healthcare. As we know, that's uh, largely. Uh, the, the, the biggest reason why we have out-of-control health care costs, it's uh, the disconnect between uh, individuals and the healthcare care plans uh, that they utilize. Um, and so with, with HSAs, obviously, it uh, brings that connection back. Um, when the ACA was enacted several years ago, we were promised that healthcare costs would go down and that uh, choices would remain. Um, and that you keep your doctor and all that we heard and we all know that that certainly hasn't come to pass. In Arizona, we had the distinction uh, um, of having one county for a time at least, one insurer has come back in, uh, but one county, Pinal County, just south of Maricopa County, had nobody in the exchange, not even any choice. Uh, Most counties are a good number counties around the country uh, have just one choice, and that applies to 13 of uh, Arizona's 15 counties, uh, but one county for a time. And believe me, it'll come back again. Had no choice at all on the exchange. Uh, with HSAs, obviously, w- what we want to do is take the the arbitrarily low limit, about $3,300 per individual, 6600 per family policy, and we triple it uh, and basically say that uh, it ought to be much higher. We lift regulatory restrictions placed uh, by Obamacare on HSAs, and we allow individuals to use savings on more eligible purchases um, and more universal participation in, in HSAs. I'm not sure what uh, Dave has talked about so far on this, but uh, but that's basically the crux of the legislation. And I'm pleased to work with him and and appreciate the support of Cato and other groups who have uh, been so so forceful on these issues and have and have been uh, doing a great job educating the public and why this is where we need to go with healthcare reform. Thanks for having
0: me. Uh, did you have time for a question? Yes, right. Sure. Anyone want to ask a question of Senator Flick or Representative Brad? This is a great opportunity. When are you <laughs> ever going to ask an <laughs> <a laughs> elected member of Congress or anything? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I already did, but this put the hand up. <laughs> i just like to get your reaction and make one suggestion that you add to these, uh, to these uh, bills. Unlimited
3: gifting up, uh, unlimited gifting
2: one account to another. Say, somebody oh, else? so if you combine one to say bills, you get the one, right? Okay, <laughs>
3: I don't think either Dave and I would be opposed to that, <laughs> certainly. So, right, exactly.
1: Thank you. Thank you all for, I'm in the middle of a budget hearing, so I'm back to trying to balance that beast. Thank you all for coming out. <laughs> Thank, you. All right. Thank you, guys, Thank
3: you. much. I believe there's a question right here.
1: Yeah, sure.
3: Would there be an impact to revenue? Would um, there be an impact to revenue? You know, obviously this is not, uh, there, there, there would be an impact in terms of, uh, 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 M- Michael Turner puts this well, <laughs> in terms of where uh, the, the costs of healthcare are. Right now, the average employee uh, contributes about $5,000 to, to a family policy. The employer, about $13,000. Uh, so the expenditures are already there. That should be the employees to determine what they do with it. Um, in this regard, they should be able to get more from the employer, but it would be a tax credit that you're getting, so there would be some fiscal impact. Uh, but overall, um, certainly in terms of health care costs, it would drive down the costs, and that would help on the uh, uh, government-funded health care plans as well, Medicare and Medicaid. And so I, uh, I'd have to look to see what the fiscal note is on this. but. Uh, but obviously, if we're driving down overall health care costs, which we need to, um, it's going to be a huge benefit to the federal government, given the uh, the role that the federal government currently plays with healthcare. Well, we we it's difficult to get any real reforms to to care when uh, uh, the main the namesake of Obamacare is in the White House. <laughs> and I think everybody knows that we, uh, we simply, there are limits to what we can do. Um, it's difficult in the Senate, difficult enough to get 60 votes to put anything on the president's desk. You need 67 votes to override any veto that would come. So um, the likelihood of something moving before uh, you know we have a new president is uh, minimal. And given the legislative days, obviously, that we have left. But we've got to get this marker down and get the legislation ready. And I can tell you, in January, uh, whomever is president, uh, there's going to be an imperative uh, to reform the system. And uh, there is no way, for example, uh, in a state like Arizona, that uh, anybody who's president can stare down uh, consumers in 13 of 15 counties that only have one choice, uh, with premiums going up 50 60%, copays, deductibles going up as well. Um, it, it simply can't be done politically for very much longer. And so the prospect of some change is coming. The um, question is, can we make it market-driven, you know, consumer-based change? Um, or some on the left will be saying, no, we just need more government intervention and more subsidies uh, that way. And so that's going to be the real battle, and that's why it's important. I hope that we still, as Republicans, control the Senate. Republicans are certainly more likely to push for this kind of reform.
0: Any more? No, that looks like well,
3: it. thank you for having me here and thank you for what you're doing.
0: Uh, on to the uh, next part of the program. Uh, we have two speakers remaining, Michael F. Cannon. First is the Kano Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Cannon is described as Obamacare's fiercest critic and my favorite, Obamacare's single most relentless antagonist. Cannon is the co-editor of Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform and co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. Previously, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the US Senate Republican Policy Committee where he advised the Senate leadership on health, education, labor, and welfare. He has appeared on all the national networks, and his written work has appeared in all the major newspapers, periodicals, uh, journals, including JAMA Internal Medicine, the Harvard Health Policy Review, where he also serves on the board, the Yale Journal of Health Policy, Law and Ethics, and many more. He blogs regularly at Cato as well as at Forbes under the title Darwin's Fool. Cannon holds an MA in economics and a JM in law and economics from George Mason University. With that, Michael Cannon. Okay,
4: thanks. Um, And uh, thank you, I think, turn that off pardon me uh, Thank you Peter and thank you to the congressman and the senator and to John Goodman the father of health savings accounts for joining us today uh, to uh, to talk about the potential for health savings accounts to reform or even to restart health care reform um, I'm going to be uh, uh, talking about uh, the flake and the brat and uh, the flake brat bill uh, because I, I, I think that while this is, they call it the Health Savings Account Expansion Act, and it does expand health savings accounts in some, w- in some ways, it w- would be easy to miss how transformative a bill this could be. It's deceptively transformative, even. And I want to talk about it uh, first by uh, uh, invoking a framework that uh, the, uh, a journalist named Philip Klein uh, put together when he wrote this book called Overcoming Obamacare. He was talking about why opponents of Obamacare haven't coalesced around a replacement plan and he says the reason is because there are really three different schools of thought about what to do about Obamacare among Obamacare opponents. And he divides, he he calls these are the three schools that uh, into which he divides Obamacare opponents. He says there's the reform school, which says, you know, it might be nice to repeal Obamacare, but it's not going to happen or it's going to be very difficult, so we should try to, change the law in order to make it work better. Uh, Ovik Roy is one of the uh, health, scho- health policy scholars who's um, uh, who, who uh, takes that tack. He's in the reform school. There's the repeal and replace school. And I think John Goodman uh, is in this school, Jim Capretta, others are in the repeal and replace school. They say we need to repeal Obamacare and then replace it with reforms like, and typically the centerpiece of of the the replace plans offered by this school of thought uh, is a health insurance tax credit. Then there are those uh, who think that that's not the direction we should be heading. Uh, Philip Klein calls these folks the repeal and restart school. He puts me in that school, uh, uh, former Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, uh, opponents of tax credits who say that tax credits are too close to Obamacare itself that we should be heading in another direction. And the Flake-Bratt bill is significant in a number of ways. One of them is because the Restart School finally has some federal legislation that has been introduced. Uh, Governor Jindal has uh, uh, proposed a, a replace plan centered around uh, a, what, he, w- what is called a standard, de- a standard deduction for health insurance, originally uh, proposed by the Bush administration. In 2007, I think it was. I think it was 2007. It's been a while now. I put forward an idea called large health savings accounts that would expand health savings accounts and that is uh, essentially what the, and the Flake-Bratt bill adopts that basic framework. So first, a couple words about health savings accounts for the uninitiated. The uh, health savings accounts were enacted in 2003, became an option in 2004, and what they basically do is they they allow people who purchase a qualified high-deductible health plan, that's a high-deductible health plan, designed by the federal government, to put money aside, tax-free, into a health savings account. And that money can, will, uh, not only are your contributions tax-free, but growth is tax-free. You don't pay tax, uh, uh, taxes on the interest uh, uh, that you earn in that account. And if you're taking money out of the account for uh, qualified medical expenses, then those withdrawals are tax-free as well. Health savings accounts by 2014, after about 10 years, had, uh, well, there were 26 million people enrolled in these government-defined high-deductible health plans and about 16 million people with health savings accounts. There's been uh, a a lot of interest in these. They're growing fairly rapidly. In 2015, there was an 11 percent increase in enrollees, a 53 percent increase over 2013. And by 2016, there were 33 billion dollars deposited in health savings accounts. Now, that sounds like a lot of money when you're talking about health care. It's not all that much. It would basically fund health. 33 billion dollars would fund health it would fund Medicare for about three weeks. I think I figured. So, uh, but but this is an established sort of product. People uh, are familiar with it. They like it. What would the Flake Brett bill do? Well, it would implement a number of changes. Uh, first and maybe most important, it would increase HSA contribution limits. As Senator Flake said, it would basically triple them uh, from their current limits to $9,000 for individuals and $18,000 for families. It would also expand the, the range of things you could purchase with your HSA funds tax-free. It would include, most significantly, health insurance premiums. So you could buy health insurance from your HSA tax-free and it would also allow you to buy over-the-counter medications and direct primary care tax-free with your HSA funds. It would eliminate the mandate that you you purchase one of those government-defined high-deductible health plans in order to get an HSA. In fact, it it would eliminate any requirement that you purchase health insurance in order to make HSA contributions. And finally, it would reduce uh, the penalty on non-medical withdrawals. You can take money out of an HSA to buy a television set but you have to pay income taxes on that withdrawal as well as a 20% penalty. The Flake-Bratt bill would drop that penalty down to 10%, which is what it was before Obamacare. Now, I italicized some of these changes because those are the most significant ones. They're the most significant changes because those are the ones that could have a transformative effect on our health care sector. And I mean transformative, more transformative than anything else that Congress could enact, more transformative than Paul Ryan's premium support pro- uh, proposal for Medicare. And to explain why requires, a little bit of explanation about the existing tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance. We call it the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance. And uh, what it does is it excludes from your tax base. It basically exempts from both income and payroll taxation money that your employer pays toward your health insurance, toward a health plan that your employer is providing to you. And in some cases, uh, the money that an employee... Uh, puts to that health plan can be exempt from p- income and payroll taxes, too. But the way this works is, uh, what I've got up here is a chart from the Kaiser Family Foundation showing the uh, average uh, premium for uh, an employer-provided family plan in 2005. It was almost $11,000. And on average, the employer contributes, and I should put air quotes around that word, contributes, the employer pays about $8,000 of that $11,000 and about $3,000 is the, quote, employee portion of the premium, how much the employee pays. What the tax exclusion does is basically says that the amount the employer pays is tax-free. The amount that you pay is taxed. If there's one thing that all health economists agree on, it's that that $8,000 that the employer is paying is not the employer's money. It doesn't come out of profits. It comes out of employee compensation. If your employer were not buying you a health plan we're not providing you a health plan with that money. They would have to give you that money in cash in, or other compensation. So, but the reason, so what's happening here is the exclusion, the tax exclusion, the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance, is encouraging workers to surrender control over a significant chunk of their earnings. In 2005, it was $8,000. Uh, and in 2015, it was 13, almost $13,000. The tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance is encouraging workers to surrender control over that much of their earnings to their employer and let their employer choose their health plan. Now, we call this a tax break. For some reason, we call this a tax break. I don't know why we call it a tax break when a government policy separates workers from their money and lets someone else control their money and make their health insurance decisions. To me, that's not a tax break. That's more a government program than it is a tax break. And if you sum up the amount of money that employers are controlling on behalf of workers, that $13,000 across all employees and over the next 10 years, according to CMS figures, that's nine, about $9 trillion that we're talking about. The flake Brat bill and those three changes that I had italicized on the previous slide are, are important because they could, they're transformative because they would allow workers to control that $13,000 that their employers now control. They would allow workers to take that $13,000 as cash wages without any tax penalty or with a very small tax penalty for some people that I could uh, explain away very quickly. But it would allow them to take that money as cash wages and still get the tax uh, benefits of the the current tax preference from employer-sponsored insurance, but allow them to purchase insurance either from their employer or from any other source tax-free. And this is, this is, to give you an idea of, of, of how big a change or how transformative this could be, let's look at the amount that empl- uh, of, of health spending that employers control right now the, and the amount of health spending that the Flake-Bratt bill could return, the amount of money that that bill could return to the people who earned it. This is uh, These are figures from CMS. Uh, for 2016, the uh, uh, total health care sp- spending is about $3.6 trillion. 51% of that is government spending. People like to say we have a free market in healthcare in the United States. Uh, it's not even true. Uh, government controls half of the spending directly. Another quarter, almost a quarter, of, of health spending in the United States is spending that employers control because we have this tax preference for employer sponsored insurance that penalizes workers unless they give con- employers control over their earnings. 21% of healthcare spending. This is just another form of government control, really. So, looking just at direct government spending and the tax preference for employer sponsored insurance, you've already got the government effectively controlling 72% of health spending in the United States. It controls another 10% through the individual mandate, which is very similar to the tax preference for employer sponsored insurance. Either you do what the government says with your money or uh, you pay a penalty to the IRS. Uh, that brings us to 82%, and the actual, you know, how much the government is actually controlling is more than that because. The other private spending, and, uh, including out of pocket spending, uh, is usually spent in accordance to, uh, with, with, with government dictate. So we're, but we're we're talking about with the Flake Brat bill is returning 21% of US health care spending from, uh, to, to the workers who earned it. Another perspective on that is uh, the exclusion isn't the only tax break for health insurance in the US, uh, in the federal tax code. There are all sorts of other health related tax preferences. Uh, Over the next 10 years, they amount to just about uh, $600 billion, okay? They are dwarfed by the uh, size of the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance. Over the next 10 years, that's about $4.4 trillion is what the Treasury Department estimates. That also dwarfs the amount of the mortgage interest deduction. Uh, Now, the Treasury Department says that this is the revenue loss, that this is the, quote, tax expenditure, and I hate that term, but this is the revenue loss to the federal government from all of these provisions, Leave it to the federal government to describe these provisions as having a revenue loss. What, this, what these numbers show is the implicit tax penalty that, that the tax code imposes on people who don't pay for their home with a, with a mortgage. If you pay in cash or uh, if, if, you, uh, uh, pay, if you pay for a home in cash and rather than through a mortgage or if you rent rather than buy a house, you are, that is the, uh, if all the people who are currently do that, or who currently have a mortgage either paid in cash or rented, they, the, the penalty for them doing so over the next 10 years would be $900 billion. So what we're talking about here is the implicit penalty. And if all the people with employer sponsored insurance said no boss, I want that money, that $13,000 as wages, $4.4 trillion is how much they would, uh, they, additional they would have to pay in taxes over the next 10 years. That's the effective penalty if they want to control their money. And what that allow, and that penalty leverages about nine trillion dollars in compensation over the next ten years. That's how much workers surrender to uh, their employers and let their employers control over the next ten years, according to CMS figures, uh, because of that 4.4 trillion dollar implicit penalty. And that's the money that employer, that the Flake Brat bill could return to workers over the next ten years nine trillion dollars. To give you another perspective on how much money that is, that's roughly equivalent to all federal Medicare spending over the next 10 years. That's how much money we're talking about this bill could return to to workers. And one final perspective. Returning that money to workers would be an effective tax cut because right now federal policy is letting someone else control your money. If you change federal policy, let workers control that money, then you are returning to them an amount of uh, a, a share of GDP that is actually greater then the share of GDP uh, returned to the private sector by the Reagan and the Bush tax cuts combined. If you add up all of those, it's about 4.16 percent of GDP, but for various reasons, you probably don't want to add those figures together. Still, large to say is there an effective tax cut that is larger than those three combined. And how would it work? Well basically, if you change the tax code to give workers this uh, uh, the option of putting, That $13,000 into a large HSA, then they say to their employers, we want that money as cash. They're able to put that. They decide at the beginning of the year, like as with a flexible spending arrangement, how much of that they're going to put into a large HSA. If it's $13,000 or all the way up to the contribution limit of $18,000, they can do that. And then if they want to stay in their employer plan, they pay that money back to their employer to stay in their employer plan. In fact, they could set up a direct deposit and automatic bill pay, so that this change takes effect on January 1st, and they don't even notice any change. But it would also free them to purchase coverage from any other source uh, without penalty. Uh, There would probably need to be a credit uh, to provide tax parity for people whose employers don't do, uh, who who would not provide uh, an exclusion from uh, their uh, through their through their when they're doing payroll. And as I mentioned, this would be a huge effective tax cut. Now, I'm already uh, uh, running short on time, so I'm going to skip over these slides, which show uh, how it would be an effective tax cut for almost for everybody and an explicit tax cut only for a few uh, high-income earners and why we shouldn't worry about them. But uh, that is how large health savings accounts would return control over $13,000 to the Average family with employer sponsored insurance and allow and have a transformer and also mean better health care because when you return that money to employees, uh, they would be the ones making their health insurance decisions. They would be able to fire their health insurance company if they don't like what their, uh, uh, how their health insurance company is treating them. And you would get not only much more responsive health insurance, you would get downward pressure on health care prices like we have never seen before because people would gravitate toward health insurance plans with either high cost sharing. Uh, at higher deductibles and higher cost sharing and be paying for more of their health care directly with tax-free large HSA funds, or they would be gravitating toward more economical health plans uh, that uh, use more managed care controls and put downward pressure on prices that way. So at the same time, we're giving workers more control over their money and delivering a huge tax cut. We're putting downward pressure on health care prices, which is going to do more to bring health care within the reach of uh, the most vulnerable uh, people, the sick, Uh, the poor, than any other policy that Congress could enact. So there's a lot more to be said about this legislation, this concept. Generally, uh, uh, I'll I'll, I'll stop now and and let John talk about it be happy to take your questions after. Thank you.
0: Thank you for that, Michael. Uh, Last but certainly not least is Dr. John C. Goodman. He is the President and CEO of the Goodman Institute for Public Policy Research, one of the nation's leading thinkers on health policy. And as you've heard, and since epithets are a thing among health policy scholars, Dr. Goodman is also known as the father of health savings accounts. Uh, he is the author of nine books, including *A Better Choice: Healthcare Solutions for America* and *Priceless: Curing the Healthcare Proc- Crisis*, among others. He too is peer- has appeared; his authored numerous editorials in the America's leading newspapers and periodicals. He is author or co-author of more than 50 published studies on such topics as health policy, tax reform, and school choice. And he should be no stranger to. Many of you, as he regularly briefs members of Congress on economic and health policy, and has served as a frequent witness before congressional committees, uh, Dr. Goodman received a Ph.D. in economics from Columbia University.
2: John. Yeah. Wow. Um, after all that, makes you feel like you should run for office. I'm John Goodman, <laughs> I approve that message. Um, <laughs> oh, hey, John. One, because we're recording, do you mind speaking oh, you into the me? microphone? Yeah. Sorry about that. All right. I thought I could see you all a little better, but all right. We'll speak from here. Um, Health savings accounts and health reimbursement arrangements are the fastest growing products in the health insurance market today. Uh, Just within the last four years, uh, uh, contributions to health savings accounts have doubled. And I think that trend is going to continue. But even with all of that, we have barely scratched the surface in terms of what we could and should be doing with these accounts. Now there are basically two ways uh, to insure. transfer all the risk to a third party or you can take on risk yourself and uh, It's important to get the right things in the right circle here but I suspect that um, if we think about the uh, Decisions that individuals are capable of making on their own and where it's appropriate for them to make on their own uh, There are many many more decisions that I think most of you have been thinking about now 25 years ago Pat Rooney, Chairman of Golden Rule Insurance, and I came to the Capitol Hill, and we presented this idea, and we made a list of some considerations that we ought to pay attention to in thinking about where should individuals be making their own decisions, and where should the third party be making the decisions, and basically, after thinking about it, we thought that the health savings account was primarily to be used for small medical bills underneath a deductible, and, uh, and that's how we started out. But I just wasn't smart enough to begin to think about all of the ways in which health savings accounts could be profitably used. And my thinking today is that there is almost no aspect of medicine where health savings accounts should not be involved. Um, Just to give you a few examples, uh, there's no reason why patients on their own couldn't handle all primary care, all um, or almost all uh, diagnostic tests if an employer, say, put $2,000 or $2,500 in an account and let the employee manage manage it. Of course, we can't do that today because of Obamacare. Um, There is increasing evidence that chronic patients can manage their own care. New study just out the other day summarized at Kaiser Health News. um, The cancer patients, the heart patients, the diabetics uh, with training can manage their own care as well or better than traditional doctor care. If they're going to manage their own care, they should be managing the money that pays for that care. Uh, value-based purchasing out in California. Wellpoint, uh, which handles the account for all the California employees, all their families, all their retirees, with the permission of the state of California, told all those folks, if you want a knee replacement or a hip replacement, you can go to any hospital in the state that you want to go to. But all we're going to pay is $30,000. Now, prior to that, the cost was ranging all over the map from 10000 up to above 100000 <laughs> So, employees went into the market with no negotiation, no, no, no telephone calls going back between WellPoint and any hospital, and within two years, the average cost of a knee replacement in California was below $30,000. Now, what they might have done, and I think should have done, is go ahead and put the $30,000 in an account, that the employee owns um, and then let the employees go into the market and if they can find a knee replacement or a hip replacement for 28,000 then they're two thousand dollars for the, to the good so we turn these patients into real shoppers in a medical marketplace and I think most of them would like to be in that position now when you start thinking that way it is a nice segue to medical tourism because uh, there are huge savings in healthcare today if you're willing to travel and if uh, Wellpoint put $30,000 into account for a knee replacement patient or a hip replacement patient, if they're willing to get on a plane and fly down to the Grand Caymans, they're going to find that quality is as good or better, and the cost is a half to a third of what it would be in California. So, put the $30,000 in account. You want to go to Grand Cayman. Uh, your spouse can get, go out on the white sandy beaches while you're having your surgery, and you save $10,000 because you're willing to make that trip. So, uh, medical tourism has been a hard sell for a lot of employers, but that's just because they're not letting the employees share in the, in, in the, in the true benefits. Uh, but but do this, and tons of people would be willing to travel. Um, Custodial care we're already doing this in Medicaid uh, the homebound disabled are managing their own budgets under the cash and counseling program uh, It saves money care is better Ninety-nine, ninety-five percent approval ratings and you don't find those kinds of approval ratings in any health care system in the whole world So this is rather phenomenal. We're doing it Medicaid Why don't we do it uh, for the rest of the population end-of-life care nursing home care? Europe, the socialist countries in Europe, are actually telling the long-term care families if you'll take a certain amount of money, you can have it and go away. I mean, they're way ahead of us (laughs) in terms of empowering uh, people. So uh, there's almost no aspect of health care that I can think of uh, where where health savings accounts couldn't improve on what's happening right now, including emergency room care. Uh, On the West Coast and the East Coast, New York, California. San Francisco, we have uber doctor services, I don't know if you all have heard about them. But for $100, the doctor comes to your home at nights and on weekends, usually comes within an hour, whereas the emergency room wait would be much longer than that. Uh, the $100 is one-fifth of the average charge in an emergency room. And I suspect that if, uh, if patients were controlling more of their own money, we would see this kind of service all over the country. Now. Um, 25 years ago I drew this diagram for Bill Archer who was head of Ways and Means and it had the medical savings account at the bottom and then there was uh, uh, some out-of-pocket costs and then all the more expensive things were above the deductible. And the mistake we made, and I I, I didn't realize it at the time, the mistake we made is we codified this diagram. Uh, And then when Bill Thomas uh, gave us the health savings account in 2004, uh, he codified it again. And what it means to be codified is if you don't have an insurance plan that looks like that, you can't have the health savings account. Um, so then I began to think about it a bit more, and I thought, well, you know, there are some first dollar, there are some small dollar tests uh, that, that we want the patient to get. I mean, suppose there are symptoms of breast cancer. Well, we want the woman to go get the mammogram, right? And maybe we want to pay for it. Maybe we don't want to leave that an option for her to uh, uh, to choose on her own. Uh, and then there's some other higher dollar uh, uh, decisions that that people ought to be able to make above the deductible. So I drew this kind of diagram. But then as time went on, I realized no, no, no. We ought to quit trying to design what the health plan ought to look like. Uh, the proper health savings account wraps around any third-party plan. That's what I understand this bill would do. Am I right, Michael? Okay. So that that's really good thing that's in this bill. That uh, we get rid of telling people what the deductible's gonna be for different kinds of services. We, we wrap around anything. Now, there are three rules, in my opinion, to get us to the, to the better world. One is this one, uh, uh, the health savings account wraps around any third party plan. Uh, number two, the tax advantage. <laughs> whatever, whatever we're gonna to do to encourage people to have health insurance, I'd like to see a universal tax credit, same for everybody. But whatever that's gonna be, that needs to be upfront and the restrictions on any initial deposit to the health insurance uh, to the health savings account that needs to be up front. That's rule number two. And rule number three is beyond that. Uh, insurers should be able to do whatever they want to do with these accounts with no bad tax consequences. And by that I mean, uh, you want to put thirty thousand dollars into account of a, of a knee replacement patient. The insurer should be able to do that. And it should be in an account that, that is tax-free and grows tax-free. In other words, we want to end this system where if the insurer pays $100,000 for a knee replacement, that's tax-free to the patient. But if they put $30,000 in an account for the patient to buy his own knee replacement, that's not tax-free, and it can't grow tax-free. So, so let's level the playing field. Uh, let's let the insurers and the employers make their own decisions. We, we've already going in, given whatever tax subsidy we think is appropriate here. Uh, beyond that, let's let the market decide uh, where the money's going to go. Uh, only final thing I wanna say is, uh, this is something that's hard for Republicans to, 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 uh, to understand. Uh, and that's why so many Republican bills look the way they do. But uh, just about every Republican health care plan uh, that's supposed to be an alternative to Obamacare within the last, I don't know, three or four years, has had tax credits in them, right? And uh, tax credits uh, don't fit well with the conventional health savings account. Uh, And the reason they don't is because, remember, it's third-party insurance or self-insurance, and we want people to make these decisions on a level playing field. We don't want to bias it one way or the other way. And so what that means is that if we have a tax exclusion that Michael talked about, if the tax exclusion is for premiums, then we want the tax exclusion to also apply to deposits to the account. If it's gonna be a deduction, which it is for the self-employed, then the deduction matches with the deduction. If it's going to be a credit, which means it's your marginal premiums are paid with after-tax dollars, then we want the deposit to the accounts to be made with after-tax dollars. So exclusion goes with exclusion, deduction with deduction, uh, tax credit goes with tax credit. Um, So if if uh, if we have a tax credit for the premiums then we want a Roth health savings account to match with that and uh, What we do in the sessions Cassidy bill by the way is uh, we let you choose your system So if the employer wants to stay in the tax exclusion system He can and then those employees would have access to a traditional health savings account But if the employer chooses the tax credit approach, then it's got to be a Roth account. So we we uh, You can choose the system But whatever system you choose, we're going to get the incentives right in that system.